Hey, in context listeners, we wanted to let y'all know that several of the big book cover to cover bonus episodes are brought to you in part by our friends at Faith Life. Faith Life creates electronic tools and resources for Bible study, including the Logos Bible software. Several of the subject matter experts you'll be hearing from in our bonus episodes are professors from the Logos Mobile Ed program. These men and women teach a variety of online courses through Logos where you can purchase a single class, work towards a certificate, or even an accredited seminary degree. And right now, Logos is offering a special promo code of 15% off to all In Context listeners. Just go to logos.com forward slash In Context to see all their offerings and get 15% off now through December 24th. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, welcome back to the broadcast. We're again delighted to have Dr. Mark Chivalis with us. Uh, Mark, we wanted to talk today, uh, we've been talking in our last episode with you about women, particularly in the book of Numbers and some of the problematic text and laws and now we want to jump to judges so judges of course we've got our hero deborah and some other individuals J- jump into where you want to start with the how women are portrayed depicted perhaps most importantly the story of of uh, deborah and Sisera and so forth well actually i think that maybe the best way to jump in this is is the hard one with the book the, the story of jephthah in judges 11 because um I think in many respects, that story is a hitching post. Now, l- like I said before, I think we have to look at this all in context. And I think in many respects, the book of Judges might be the hardest book to stomach for a Christian in all of the Bible, because it's, because I think the theme of the book is encountered maybe a half a dozen times through the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so what does this mean? that there's really social, political, and probably spiritual anarchy throughout the entire region. It means that everybody's going to be doing—this is kind of like the wild, wild west, uh, but without the posse and without the, uh, you, no know, the sheriff. you know, the sheriff, et cetera. None of them are there, and everybody's doing what they think is the best way to do things. And so, of course, and Unlike Genesis, you've got stories where bad things happen, and in Genesis, of course, God usually comes to the rescue by doing something that will pull the person out of this bad situation. Well, that doesn't happen at the end of the book of Judges, and you're, and you're left scratching your head. So here we have the story of Jephthah. Jephthah, he's got, he's got a, you know, in fact, you know, every judge is always the last person you would expect to be judged. They're either, they're either a woman or they're from a, a weak tribe, or there's somebody like Jephthah, who's the son of a prostitute, uh, who is kicked out of his family. And not only that, you know, he becomes, he becomes well, I use the example, 
it's a bad one, but I can't think of anything else. He sort of becomes a terrorist, if you think about it. He's kicked out of his brothers. He finds a bunch of other people who are, who, you know, disenchanted, and he becomes a raider. In fact, I think David— Well, the, the, text, the text says he assembles other worthless fellows. <laughs> right. Well, this doesn't, that this becomes doesn't look his, like it's going to come out very well. Okay, right. so, so, all right, so he's now doing all these things, and then, of course, uh, we have a problem with, with the Ammonites, and so his tribe comes to him and says, you know, um, this, this would be like a, a fictitious story of the U.S. government saying, hey, we're having really a lot of trouble with the Nazis, but, you know, maybe we should ally ourselves with the mafia or Capone. Maybe they can order all the their bad guys and come and help us. Well, of course, that sounds nonsensical, but that's what's happening here. They're saying we're having trouble with them. Maybe we can get Jephthah on our side. And so Jephthah says, yes, as long as you return to me, in other words, as long as I now get my rightful inheritance and you put me in leadership, uh, yes. Over all the inhabitants of Gilead, he's asking for a lot. Right. And they said, well, we don't have much of a choice, and so so let's do it. Well, of course, um, you know, point off and names mean something in the Bible, and they're usually, uh, uh, will be found out later. His name means, it, it, it comes from the same root we have in Babylonian, to open. And so his name means something like he opened, sorry, or, or the Lord opened something. Okay, so what does this mean here? So what does Jephthah do? He makes a vow. Uh, and, of course, it's a very foolish vow. Uh, he vows that uh, to God, if you... Um, if you help me win this battle, then I'll, of course, sacrifice the first person I see when I get home. Um, well, you know, to a modern Westerner, that's what you're thinking. Well, that's the stupidest thing you would ever right. do. Why would yeah. you do that? And then, of course, you're thinking, well, this must be a story to show why somebody shouldn't make vows. Well, I don't think <laughs> it is at all. Uh, I that's think a stretch, right? <laughs> in, in the ancient, in the ancient Near Eastern world, and even in the Greek and Roman world. If you're going out to battle, it's a spiritual thing. The first thing I want to do is I want to make sure that uh, that God's on my side, and so um, uh, and so I can push the envelope. It, to me, as a modern Westerner, it looks like he it lacks faithfulness when he does this. But I don't think that's what's going on here. This is a very this is a very standardized thing. Not not the actual vow that he made, but the fact that of either doing a vow or doing some sort of uh, Correct divination that would have been the Orem and the Thuman, uh, the dice, or or asking a prophet. You know that's what Barak does in in Judges four. He really wants to test the waters to see whether Deborah is a correct prophet. He wants to get a second opinion or wants to see whether she's legitimate. Right. Well, here he's doing something to see whether or not. But of course he makes an astoundingly terrible vow. But you know something, depending on when the Book of Judges is written. And I'm I'm guessing that maybe the final edition, which I also think was divinely inspired, if it's done a little bit, little bit later, uh, the Israelites or the Judeans are probably sacrificing their children uh, at, in the Valley of Hinnom. And so I think this might be an implicit condemnation of what they're doing. I don't. I just don't know. That's a hmm. that's a possibility. So if that's the is, case, is there any is there a remote possibility? Because uh, the text is a bit innocuous. Uh, in, in chapter 11, verse 31 of Judges, whatever comes out of the doors of my house. Is yes. there any remote possibility he, it wasn't a person? Well, 
uh, I suppose. An animal. I mean, that, we're thinking of the front door of a home. I, I, don't, we... yes. I don't know Hebrew well enough, but I know that, that people have argued as to, that whether it could be. Most of the people I've seen think it has to be anima, a human, okay. but others okay. said it could be an animal. Um, of, of course, um, I think what, when his daughter comes out with trembles and dances, um, uh, one scholar has thought well, it probably means that the expectation that would have been an adult doing some sort of ritual, a victory ritual, uh, and then his daughter probably wouldn't be a part of that because she's not old enough to participate. But 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 you know, the the text leaves a lot to be thought about, and I think quite often in the Bible. Uh, first of all, we're asking questions of the text that it has no interest in answering. Even when I talk about how women are treated, you know, the Bible isn't trying to tell us how women are treated in the Old Testament uh, any more than if I wrote a treatise about cats and 5,000 years, 5, years later cats are dead, they'd be looking at my treatise to, to figure out what cats are like if I described them. But here, he's, he's not telling us any information that we're looking for, we want to know, well, did he actually do what he said he was going to do? Well, of course right. he did. That's the whole point of the story, is that this is so heinous, is that he made a vow, and, and you know, his vow... Can I take it back? Well, not, not only that, uh, his daughter, when she finds out about it, says, well, Dad, you opened your mouth. And when she says that, it's the worst part of the Bible because she's basically saying, you Jephthah's your mouth, and so now you've got to do it because your name is Jephthah, you know, and it means the same thing. And so I mean, that's mm-hmm. just a horrible pun. Uh, that, that wouldn't go over very well in any social circle. Um, and, so, and so you're thinking, wait a minute, what does this passage have to do with anything then if he's, he's made this rash vow? And the emphasis is not on the fact that he made a rash vow. People make rash vows all the time and that they shouldn't have. It's that he's thought that here's a guy who's well-meaning, and why is he making this vow, and why isn't there anybody to stop him? In other words, just think about it. If you decided to make a horrible vow like this, the state would stop you. Like, wait a minute, buddy, you can't do that. We're calling the police, and, and we're going to come over and... and and lock you up for this horrible thing. Even if you think about it, we're going to lock you up. Well, here, there's nobody to stop you. You know why? Because in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone that was right in his own eyes. Doom, and you know right, who yeah. suffers? Women and children. So the daughter dutifully says, you know, she says, yes, Father, I'll do what you want. And, of course, he, he puts the blame on her, just like Adam puts the blame on Eve. You know, you're the cause of a lot of trouble to me, he says to her. And then, then she says, well, before we go, do you mind if I go into the mountains for uh, uh, a couple of months with my girlfriends and bewail my virginity? And you're thinking, what on earth is that? Well, in Mesopotamia, if you were a girl and you died before you gave birth, in other words, you did not fulfill your vocational destiny of, of giving birth issue to your new legal family, you know what you became in Mesopotamia? A baby-snatching demoness that were now was doomed to uh, live in the underworld and snatch babies from uh, above. In other words, this was a way to explain why babies died all the time, and it was the demoness who, who would take one down so you could coddle a baby, the, the thing that you never got to do on the earth. Well, there was, this is a holdover to that. Even though the Israelites might not believe in the second part of that, they certainly believed they were obsessed with making sure the family line continued. Now now Jephthah's made a vow, 
and he didn't expect his daughter to come out. Now she's going into this area to um, bewail her virginity. And then she comes back, and of course it says that Jeff did dead to her, as he said, and so obviously he put her to death. And then it, it has this really weird, you know, um, teleology or, uh, you know, end results to it, you know, this is now to explain why, you know, women and daughters go for four, you know, days out of the year to uh, into the hills or, or the wilderness to bewail the, the you know, um, Jephthah's daughter's virginity, her, the girl with no name. Um, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. In other words, this is just to explain a custom. You know, what a weird custom. What's the mother going to say uh, to the daughter? Hey, honey, guess what? You and I are going on a retreat. Uh, Daddy and, and brother going, no, it's just us. We're going to go on a retreat uh, for a couple of days, and we're going to moan and cry for Jeff's daughter. Isn't, doesn't that sound like fun? And we're going to have a bunch of other ladies there doing it with their daughter. Well, that just sounds really weird. Um, and my answer is that's not a story to explain that either. It's a story to explain the much bigger picture, is that even a good guy like Jephthah, a well-meaning person, who wants to do the right thing? He even makes the he even makes the Hebrews Hall of Fame. Even he, if he has no restraint on him, will do absolutely a horrible, unspeakable things, like uh, put his daughter to death because of a misguided sense of justice. And who's going to stop him? Nobody. There's nobody to stop him. And so when there's nobody to stop them, uh, then that's that's what happens. And then you think about the. the and judges, each story gets progressively worse. Even the Samson story is bad. And then there's this appendix at the end of the book where there's absolute chaos. And Judges 19 through 21, I think, is the absolute worst story in the Bible because what happens yes. when there's chaos and the people themselves are bad and do whatever they want and they have a veneer of religion? It's it's complete civil, but how do you get there? That's the the horrible thing. Well, let's go back to Judges four and five because I want to. Uh, sure. I love the story of Deborah and Jael and Sisera. I think it's one of the. It's a tragic story, but I love the irony is so rich in Deborah's what I would call kind of her comeuppance uh, to Barack. But you yeah. may have a different uh, uh, observation on it. So let's let's remind our listeners. So we we've got this theme through Judges. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Uh, in the beginning of the book of Judges, we've got the epic failure of much of the land was uh, not taken care of. And so these these uh, deliverers, or really more like battle leaders, are uh, put in place. And as you mentioned earlier, they're not necessarily the best pick um, and and they also become more personal and more individualized as the story I, goes. You know, you have first the nation is in concerned, but now it's basically hitmen uh, and with Samson. But the story of Deborah is interesting because uh, she doesn't want to do this, um, and Barak is the one who's supposed to be the deliverer. I'll let you pick up the storyline from there. Yeah, I think what's going on here. There's some things that are implicit. First of all, it's interesting that she's never described, she's never called a judge. She's right. called a prophetess who's judging Israel. And so the reader is probably already going to know, oh, this is sort of different. Uh, there's no explicit reference anywhere where the women are forbidden to be judges or, uh, but however, when you look at 
the reality that throughout the entire Old Testament before this, they're not in any position of this type of, in this hierarchical position anywhere. And of course, the judge is somebody who does all sorts of things, including military aspects. And um, however, which, which I would you, argue is more is more a, a picture than a black robe. These are military leaders, right? right? These are generals, commanders, colonels. These are not people that are sitting at the gate like an right. elder would in the ancient world. Right, and that's exactly right. And so, and so, how often do women lead uh, people into battle? No, in fact, we're, we're guessing, of course, that that the battle was usually a gender-specific situation. Of course, in yes. in, uh, in the Greek world, Herodotus talks about the um, Amazons. And by the way, whenever the Amazons are described in the in the Herodotus and other places. Is always put in a real historical context, which is sort of alarming. But of course, he he can he has the idea that there is a group of women soldiers who are exclusively, you know, doing what men normally do. And so I think the Bible, has, in other words, Deborah can be a judge; she can do all these things. But but of course, uh, there's this unwritten glass uh, ceiling where we don't expect her to go out to battle, of course. And so. It's, it's, it would be normative for her to go to the best general, uh, Barak, and and do what a prophetess does, give, give him a prophetic utterance. And so he's not looking for this, but this happens quite often in, in Mesopotamia, both at Mari and other places where a prophet or a prophetess will come to the king and say, uh, though you, in other words, though you didn't ask me, I have some information that you need to know. Uh, and so uh, your ally is actually your enemy or, or something. In other words, they often give them lots of political advice. I think Isaiah does the same thing. So uh, the court prophets in Israel and Judah do that. So here uh, she goes and gives Barak some unsolicited information. Yahweh has told me to tell you that uh, we're going out to battle and you're going to win. Now, Barak's response might look faithless, but in many respects, um, it's not. Basically, what he's saying is, um, can you put your money where your mouth is? How do I know Yahweh's speaking through you? If I, if you say you're coming, then I'll know that, you, in other words, if you thought the battle was going to be lost, you wouldn't want to come because you'd probably get killed. But if you think the battle's going to be won, you'd come with me. And so are you coming with me? And of course, Deborah must have seen maybe an implicit faithlessness on him or whatever. And so she says, yes, I'm coming, but guess what? You're not going to get the glory some woman is. And again, that sort of looks offensive to the female until you realize, no, uh, the female doesn't normally participate in battle. And so if she gets the glory, um, that would be unusual. Uh, in Judges 9, uh, Abimelech uh, is killed by a woman uh, in had the siege of Thebes, and so he says to his right. armor bearer as he's dying, go ahead and kill me really quick so <laughs> nobody me. will say that a woman <laughs> think killed it's a woman. <laughs> uh, and of yeah. course, uh, he didn't get his wish because, uh, you know, half the world has read the story. Um, but but um, <laughs> so, and, um, so, in fact, in, even in ancient Greece, Thucydides tells us that, that um, Pyrrhus is killed by uh, the mother of a guy he was putting to death. Uh, you know, the, he's the greatest soldier of his age. So here, Barak, uh, we don't get Barak's response. And why? Because, of course, I think the Bible often tells a story so we can have 10 different thoughts about what could have happened. And the re- 
reason is so we can keep on thinking about God. In other words, I don't know what the scenario is. I don't know why they did this, what happened in, in, in between Ruth 3 and Ruth 4. Uh, and while I'm thinking about it and meditating on it, or muttering is the Hebrew phrase, uh, is I'm thinking about God. And so I'm, I don't have to worry about resolution. I'm thinking about God, and that's what he wants me to do. And so here, the battle itself is almost uh, an anecdotal piece of information. Well, of course they won the battle. God said they were going to win the battle. They won the battle. Is that the point of the story? No. The point of the story is to explain how, how an, uh, an unexpected person, a judge, and then some woman minding her own business becomes the hero of the story. And, of course, what does that mean? Like in every other case, it means that it's pointing towards God. You're not going to point towards the the great individual who did it, you're going to appoint to the person who caused it. This is why even in the New Testament, Jesus is the last person on the planet that 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 a a person would think would be the Messiah. He's he's from the wrong side of the tracks. He's a Galilean. He's from the city of Nazareth. Uh, they've got his his paternity is in question because the Jews even say to him, "You're the son of fornication." In John eight forty one, so you know. So, it's, it, so this should draw me to God because I'm thinking, well, they didn't do it on their own. God did this. Well, here, obviously, Deborah and and Yael or Jael, if you want to call her that, she didn't she didn't do it. God obviously orchestrated all these things. And so, when you get halfway through Judges four, uh, then there's this little unnerving thing where there's the use of hyperbole. It says um, after the battle is over. Uh, the writer says, not a man of Sisera's was left. Uh, well, okay, that means everybody died. And then in the next verse, a man was left, Sisera himself. And you're thinking, wait a minute, why didn't the editor get that? Because it's hyperbole. It'd be like me saying, oh, yeah, when the, the Packers played so-and-so, they wiped them out. Well, I know not to take that literally. It wouldn't make any sense. And, but I know what it means. And so here... Um, and then we have this strange story of uh, J.L., whose husband and tribe are are at least have a non-aggression pact with the uh, uh, the Canaanites. They're not supposed to be their enemies, and so this guy comes in uh, the tent. She's a nomad woman, by the way, and so she's supposed to give him some sort of um, hospitality. I remember going into nomad tents many times where the people were very cold to us in the beginning until we gained their trust. Um, so what happens? He comes in the tent. She, um, he, he asks for sustenance and she goes way overboard. I'll, I'll give you a whole meal, milk. Right. Uh, which of course, and so of course he assumes at that point, well, if you're willing to do that, will you lie for me? Okay, so, uh, and by the way, the writer doesn't tell you the answer because it doesn't matter what the answer is. It makes you think, well, is she going to lie to him? I mean, you know, right. what's she going to do? In fact, the rabbinical tradition, who abhorred any intellectual vacuum, many of the rabbis, not all of them, said, well, uh, you know what really is going on there? Uh, they were having some hanky-panky in between. Well, I don't think that's the case, but the point is they just couldn't stand not knowing uh, what's going on. Um, and by the way, these people, especially in the Book of Judges, most of the time they're doing things that are um, not necessarily 
conducive to good behavior. I, I look at the book of Esther in the same way. The only person who's doing right in the book of Esther really is the only one who's never named God. And so here, um, you know, Jael may not be doing the right thing, but she ends up uh, for the right reasons, but she ends up doing the right thing. And so what does she do? She decides, all right, yes, uh, I'll do it. Uh, implicitly speaking, I'll do what you want. The guy goes to sleep. Um, she hears the Israelites coming by, and so she, what does she do? I don't know what she does, because if you read Judges 4, it says that she takes a tent peg and drives it to a skull while he's sleeping. If you read the poem in Judges 5, which is probably much, much older, by the way, in fact, in my opinion, Judges 5 is kind of like the equivalent of contemporary Hebrew to Shakespeare, or contemporary English to Shakespearean English. She's, uh, the, the old, old story has her coming up from behind him and smashing him. So which one's right? Well, what's, one's, a, one's poetry, one's a narrative. How are you to take poetry? Poetry is, of course, to be interpreted quite differently than the narrative. I don't know how to resolve it, but I put it this way. I think the mere attempt at resolving it is missing the point. Um, something happened. She killed the guy. And, of course, uh, that's the woman who becomes the hero of the story, some unsuspecting chet dwelling woman, minding her own business, kills the, uh, it'd, be, it'd be like killing Osama bin Laden. You know, you, you're the, right. you just were minding your business and the guy got in your, your crosshairs, you killed him and, and you become famous for it. Um, so what does it say about women? Well, it, it says that women, of course, are very assertive. They play significant roles and in many respects, they have to transcend the legal and the social constraints that they have. And in spite of all that, uh, God will use the most well, thing. But this is the most unsuspecting person uh, that that you would use. To me, irony is one of the best words to explain most of the biblical stories. Well, um, and that, that's but, what I was going to inject because Deborah's comment to Barak is, uh, "The Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Right. The honor won't be yours." And perhaps a double entendre thinking of herself okay i'm going to go with you and i'll be under the terabit tree so to speak watching all this unfold but you know who knows if she knew as a prophet what the outcome was or wasn't to me is immaterial but it's the double entendre it's gonna a woman's gonna get victory for this and then it happens to be this tent dwelling woman we know nothing of right and it's even it'd be one thing if deborah won the battle it's another if it's a you know uh, an unknown person. It's like a double insult to Barack <laughs> exactly. for but not they, doing what he was supposed to do. But they must have passed up their differences because, of course, in Judges 5, Deborah and Barack sing a duet uh, after right. all this is over. So evidently, uh, it, and all is well that ends well, evidently. Um, and so, uh, so you can still see how, I mean, again, implicitly how God is orchestrating the situation. Um, at that point. Which, by the way, it's it's a to me it's the most I love it from a poetic standpoint. But it's a bizarre song to sing in detail about killing a guy with a tent peg and smashing his head. Yes, of course. <laughs> we don't is. sing hymns. We don't sing hymns about thank you imprecation hymns about killing our enemy and and you know raising our hands in praise. <laughs> well, you know, I think that also it shows us that we're this is a really different world. It's a horrific world. Yes, where most. Yes. Don't make it out of the birth canal, and people die young, and there's war, and there's maiming, and pillaging, and raping, and all these things. Very uh, good point. Yep. Let's jump to 
probably one of the more complicated passages in Judges, and that's the Levite and the concubine. Well, this one, to me, is so hard because there's absolutely—not only is there no resolution, then it ends the book, and you're thinking, wait a minute, what am I supposed to learn from this? Because, first of all, nobody has a name, number one. Right. And and to use the old dragnet story, the names are all— the, the names are, are withheld to protect all the guilty. Um, yeah, the guilty, exactly, not the innocent. You know, and, and so you think about it. Okay, so here's this fellow, a Levite, an, an unnamed Levite, has taken a concubine, which, by the way, means he's probably dirt poor because the concubine is, a, at the very least, a second-class wife. That means he's poor. She's from a poor family. The, father is, the father-in-law is poor. And, um, and, it, and I know that the passage is often say that she played the harlot against him, but I don't, I, I, it, that's a possible way of rendering it, but it's, I think, more likely that she was faithless in the sense that she decided to leave uh, him, and of course, a, anticipating when you read the rest of the story, you'll, you'll realize this guy's a dirtbag, no wonder she ran off from him, uh, and so she decides to leave him and go back to her father's house. Usually girls would do that either if they get cold feet or if their husband is doing things that are unpleasant, so she wants to go back to daddy. So she's done that, and he waits a period of time, a couple of months. Uh, Maybe he's waiting to see whether she's coming back, and okay, I guess she's not coming back. Okay, so um, maybe it's a cat and mouse game. We don't know. The whole point is that, that... we're not given any of these answers, and so it's fun to muse about them as long as I don't think I can answer these questions. Um, unfortunately, I think evangelicals are always are convinced they've got to answer this question. I've got to figure out what's happening, and my answer is, no, you don't. Um, just just put it to God. So here he goes to get her, and the father-in-law is now sort of slobbering all over him. And I'm thinking, in my culture, if— my daughter comes to me and says, "Oh, you know, my, you know, my husband has been so mean to me." Well, my my father to daughter, you know, relationship is going to kick in and saying, "Well, ha, wait a minute, he can't do that to my little daughter." You know, there's no way. And so, it, you know, and so if he comes back over, I'm thinking, "What do you want, buddy? You know, um, you better apologize to my daughter before you even talk to her, or apologize to me. I told you to take care of her. I mean, that's how I'm going to be feeling." But here, right. I think the guy's looking at it from a financial standpoint. If my daughter doesn't go back to him and, and they end up getting split up, the next time I make a, a, a marriage alliance for her, um, the dowry is going to be really a lot lower because she's already, if I can say this in a, in a way that, that doesn't sound very nice, she's used goods in our culture. Mm-hmm. She's not going to get the same. To be, to be like a baseball player, you know, a superstar, you know, he gets his ACL torn. And he's asking for a big contract. He's saying, sorry, buddy, you're damaged goods. You're not going to get a good contract now. Uh, right. And so here, um, so he's probably going to do everything he can to make sure that she goes back with this guy, because otherwise I'm going to have to get the, I'm going to uh, give him back the bride wealth. She gets her inheritance and it's after, you know, and et cetera. So this is really messy. So, and then you have to me almost like a vaudeville act in the middle of this horrific story. And, this is where I have to tell students, you know, the Bible, uh, some of these stories are meant to make you to get a big emotional response. Sometimes the emotional response is one of disgust rather than 
angry or sad or happy. And so you're thinking, wait a minute, in the middle of the story, why is the guy and the husband, this is a patriarchal world. They're getting drunk every every day and they're eating to their fill. And then the next day, the guy gets up and he's ready, ready to leave because you want to leave in the morning. He says, wait a minute, why don't you have a meal first before you go? And of course, if you think about it, if it kept on that way, the guy would never leave. He'd still be there today because every morning he would get up and you'd have a meal. And, of course, it takes a long time to make the meal. They're full. He drinks. And now he has to wait and relax for a while. And now he's not going to be ready till late afternoon to go. And, of course, everyone knows that you never want to start leaving on a journey in the late afternoon because bad guys are out at night. And so finally, the guy says, "No, I got to get going. Sorry, I can't stay any longer. You've 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 been you've gone over the top for me. I'm leaving." And to me, the statement there, when it says the man would not listen, he would he was going to go, um, is kind of like when you're watching a suspense movie and you, the music changes and the camera angles change and the weather changes. You already know what's going to happen. The guy's going to get whacked. Somebody's going to die in a minute. You know when that happens, and so here you know something, yeah. something terrible is going to happen uh, because of that. So uh, he now travels, and then the irony, of course, is that uh, he travels past a pagan city, Jebus. He's ah, no, we don't want to go there. Then he goes into a Benjaminite city, Gibeah, which, by the way, is where Saul comes from later on. And so there, right. anybody reading that is going, to, oh yeah, <laughs> no wonder. Saul, the guy, the guy who got killed in battle, who's in infamy. And so this is, uh, so no wonder there are a bunch of dirtbags in that place. And so um, he comes to Gibeah, and then we have this story that looks remarkably on the outside like the Genesis 19 story. We have all these bad guys wanting yes. to come, and uh, they're the, as I call them, the anti-hospitality brigade. Uh, they're going to come and... Um, and they're going to shame and humiliate this newcomer rather than give him, you know, goods for his lot. And so it's the same thing that happened in Sodom. So you already know that this is a terrible place to go. Um, and you know that nobody else put him in except this this unnamed man from Ephraim. Ephraim. And so, and then this really where it happens. The Ephraimite says, oh, don't do this to my guest. The law of hospitality kicks in. So why don't you take my daughter and his concubine instead? Well, what a horrible thing. This, of course, shows the abusive patriarchal culture where even, uh, you know, the woman has no say-so in this matter. The child, the female child or children have no say-so in how they're treated by their uh, by their abusive patriarchal family. And so you're already thinking, this is horrific. Is this what happens when there's no justice, when there's nobody to stop them? And so, of course, she's taken out. She's abused. This is, of course, a rape um, more than anything else, they they raped her all night. When did she die? I don't know, but she, you know, how dramatic is it that she puts her hand on the door sill? Door sill the, mm-hmm. And so this unnamed Levite comes out. He sees her. He simply says rather abruptly, get up. And, of course, there's no answer. So is she dead yet? I don't know. And then he takes her home, and he cuts her up into 12 pieces. Now, I know that's what Saul does for shock effect to an animal, Later on, but there's also a story um, or a letter in, in ancient Mesopotamia, um, in Syria, where a queen writes to her husband and says, "Why did you get so angry, angry with me, and threaten to cut me up into twelve pieces?" Uh, and we know from Hittite uh, records 
that um, the human body was considered to be uh, 12 pieces that were sort of sewn together by the gods. So your hands were two, your arms were two more, your legs were two, your feet were two, your trunk, your head, etc. I don't know how it's all divided up, but there were, in other words, the body was made up of 12 parts. And so there's, it's not an, not an accident that there are 12 parts there. So why would the guy do this? Is this a weird, is this a custom? No, this of course is shock treatment. And then you think about this, how this continues. I mean, this is unspeakably horrific. What's the... If you're looking at it and saying, what's the purpose of the story? The immediate purpose of the story is to explain why there was a civil war between Israel and one tribe, Benjamin. You're thinking, wow, is that how is that how wars are fought? Yes, in the in the ancient world with honor shame cultures, that's how wars are fought. Uh, you insult me, I my honor has now been impugned. I must go to war with you. Whereas, of course, we look at impersonal forces and like, why did the U.S. go to war in Iraq? Oh, there's all sorts of economic you know, considerations and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But if somebody were to say, well, no, Bush went to war in Iraq because Saddam insulted his wife, you'd say, well, no, that's not why people go to war. Well, not today, uh, but in the ancient world, they do. And, and of course, the unspeakable thing about the end of that, of course, is that here's um, the Israelites, first of all, they asked God the wrong question at the beginning. They said, they don't go, shall we go to war with Benjamin? Instead, they said, who should fight him first? Well, God's not going to help him on. He's not going to say, well, you asked the wrong question. And so, uh, and of course, they're probably rolling the dice, and the dice will say, uh, they'll have to say, who shall go first? How about the tribe of Zebulon? No. Uh, how about the tribe of Ephraim? Yes. Uh, you know. But they should have asked the question, should anyone go up to fight against Benjamin first? Um, well, and that's back to the cadence of the book. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And right. In uh, 2011, all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. Right. Yeah. Where was the consult to God? Where was the consult to the prophet? You know, we're going to do this on our own. Worse than that, they're using the hypocrisy of religion to do it. So that's even the Levite in Judges 17. He's using religion. They're all using religion and using God. Okay, we're going to go consult God to do this horrible thing that we're doing, and so we can put a stamp, a divine stamp of approval. So God's going to be even angrier at that. But do you think about the end of the story? Um, They wipe out the you know, nearly wipe out the Benjaminites, except for a, a few hundred right. men. Mm-hmm. Then they feel bad about it, but we can't give you wives. Well, why can't they have their own wives? Because all the women and children are probably put, have been destroyed. Um, but the, the text doesn't tell you that, because they assume that you already figured that out. So now, uh, well, we can't, we can't give you wives, and so let's go ahead, and if you think about it, what they're trying to do is trick God. Since we made a vow that we would never give any of our wives to Benjamin, let's, let's have you guys simply abduct uh, wives from Jabesh Gilead, because, of course, they didn't go with us. Well, that didn't work out. They didn't get enough wives. And so at the very end, they're going to go to a, a Shiloh festival, a festival at Shiloh, and mm-hmm. um, we're going to turn our Snatch back on life. it. In other words, we're, we're going to let you go, and while the girls are out there doing their dances, go and abduct them. And if their fathers say, why are you doing this? Just tell them, well, no, you guys didn't give them to us before, and so it's okay. And then, and then the story's over. You're thinking, wait a minute, what about the women? Didn't they have a say-so in this? 
this is just horrific. Um, and of course, it ends with the same note. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so you're thinking, wait a minute, how is this going to work? Then you're thinking, well, I guess if they had a king, it would be okay. And of course, the next book shows you immediately, no, that's not true. Uh, even if he had a king, that wouldn't work because you're still not trusting in Yahweh. You're not, you're not following the Lord. That was what the core problem was. Dr. Mark Chevalius, give us a final word on, and, and I appreciate your caution with evangelicals and uh, modern-day Bible readers uh, making conclusions and applications that may not be aligned to the text. <laughs> so, right. so what do we do with these kind of passages? Not, not to cliche it, but you know, is there an application? Is there a lesson? You, I know you're going to say it turns us to God, but beyond that... Uh, it, living with unanswered questions, uh, the tension of some biblical passages. Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking, is that, you know, for example, um, when I first got hired here at the University of Wisconsin-Lacrosse, um, most of my colleagues in my history department were atheists, and and w- they were very nice people, and I, I was convinced they were very honest about things, but they were, they were always asking me very, very difficult biblical questions, questions about passages like this. And and my response was not to simply try to rationalize and say, well, you know, uh, this, this, and this, and just shows you this, and, and this is how I resolve that. Instead, I would say, no, that's a really tough one to resolve. I can't resolve that one. Uh, it simply leads me to God. And what happened was something that was unexpected to me. They began to trust me intellectually, like, oh, He's being really honest with us. He's not sugarcoating this. I, I have intelligence. I can look at this and see where it, there's lack of justice here, and 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 you know, and it doesn't seem to be resolved easily. And so, and and so, I would tell them this is really hard to resolve. Let me study this, and then I might come back and say I still can't resolve it. Um, but I know that God, in His character, is still God, and so even if I can't resolve it, He's still He's still on the throne. Well, I think I can say that's the same thing to Christians. If they're honest, they have to realize, boy, this is really difficult, messy, untamable stuff that I that I have a hard time dealing with. And I think that sometimes um, in the ministry, I think too often people try to resolve it either either from the pulpit or on, or in Bible studies where they'll try to resolve it, and the person goes away saying, "Gee, that doesn't really." Do that, but I don't. But I. But 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 maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me not being spiritual enough to figure out how to resolve this. And my answer is no. It's really really hard because if you think about it. Going from the sin of Adam to the cross was an unbelievably horrific thing. And so maybe God's also trying to show us that the step back to to leaving Eden, Eden, and getting back into Eden is really, really a painful, unspeakably painful road uh, to go through. Hmm. Hmm. Dr. Mark Chevalius, thank you for your time and your insight. We appreciate you being on the broadcast. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, 
and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. <laughs>